Hi folks, a very quick announcement before we get started on the episode this week. And that is a huge thank you to Katie Unicorn Stewart. I don't know if your middle name really is Unicorn. If it is, that is an awesome name. So the fabulous Katie Unicorn Stewart gave us a recent review on Apple Podcasts about the recent Governance Summit summary. So five stars for Take On Board, she says. Loved the recent Governance Summit summary podcasts. Super useful. Katie, happy to help. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to do a review. So a little prompt for others that might be listening. I love it when I get reviews and you might get read out on the pod as well. So get in there and work out how to do ratings and reviews and let me know what you think of the pod. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Gina Ballerin about her unexpected journey to the boardroom. Before we start that discussion, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today. For me, I'm on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. I acknowledge their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. I support the Uluru Statement from the Heart and I encourage others in the Take On Board community to do the same. Now, let me introduce Gina. Gina Ballerin is an inspirational TEDx and keynote speaker, storyteller and B2B marketing leader who sits on the boards of the Chartered Institute of Marketing and Project Displaced. I'm sure we'll hear more about those soon. There's lots of letters here. She's a, I don't even know how to say this, Gina. She's a FAMI and FCIM chartered marketer. She'll probably tell us more about that later as well, given she's on the Chartered Institute of Marketing. FCIM, Fellow of the Chartered Institute of Marketing. There we go. And she has a Master's of Education in Management Communication, and she's a member of the Professional Speaking Association, so she's going to be slick as today. She's the author of The Secret Army, Leadership, Marketing and the Power of People. And she loves finding the essence of information and distilling it into meaningful communication that makes positive change happen. She's just the sort of person we should have on this pod. She's the director of our own organisation, Verbalistics, a marketing communications consultancy. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Gina. It is my pleasure to be here, Helia. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. We met, actually, we met at a Take On Board meetup up in Noosa. We did sure how that came about. How did you know about that meetup? We connected through Women on Boards and I started following you. And then you said, hey, people, we're going to be here. And I was like, that's my neck of the woods. It's meant to be. And so off I popped down to Noosa and said hello to you and a few select ladies. And it was just so lovely. It was actually the first time I'd gone out and deliberately done a networking event since the beginning of COVID, believe it or not. So you popped my post-COVID networking virginity. (laughs) I'm not quite sure how to take that. But anyway, there you go. (laughs) Oh, lovely. Well, so 
great to be able to follow up that informal conversation down on the beautiful Noosa River with this podcast. But of course, before we dig into your journey to the boardroom, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me a story about young Gina that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today? So a few years ago, I realised that there are people who naturally are inclined towards leadership, but that doesn't mean that they actually take on the mantle or the responsibility of leadership. And I was one of those. I could see that it would be easy for me to step into a leadership role, and I'd often select a friend or choose someone who I thought deserved it but wasn't necessarily recognised or acknowledged and encourage them to be in that role instead. And after years of being in business, I realized this wasn't serving me. It wasn't helping me actually move forward professionally or personally. And so I dug a bit deeper and remembered something from my early childhood that stung like a slap across the face. And it was someone telling me, you're a bussy boots. Now, I don't know if any of the listeners on this podcast have ever been called a bossy boots, but it is a nasty little term that little children will say to each other when they are showing signs of leadership. But the problem is they're showing different signs of leadership. Rather than being engaging and accommodating to other people, listening and helping people find a way forward, they are often being dictatorial leaders. And so I think what my little friends were resenting was not me being a leader. They were resenting me being a leader who told them what to do rather than asking them how we could work together. And from the moment I had that epiphany, it made me realize, wait, hang on a second. I don't have to deliberately step away from being a leader because someone might call me a bossy boots or whatever the equivalent is in adult language. I can, in fact, become a leader who leads consultatively. And that made all the difference. And I think the transformational period took a few years to actually recognize that when I saw stuff that was happening in organizations that I disagreed with or that I thought needed to change or be somehow different, instead of going, I can't change this, I'm going to throw up my hands and leave the job and find somewhere else, actually started to think about getting involved challenging the status quo, going, well, if this isn't something that I think is serving the organization or the people in the organization or our purpose or our customers, well, how can I change that? And I had an incredible mentor who was my boss at the time and under whose tutelage I was able to embrace my inner bossy boots and start realizing that it was okay to be me. It was okay to just stand up for what I believed in and to make that happen. But she set the framework. She didn't necessarily put me into a leadership role. What happened is that I had to step into a position of absolute terror and take that step that was so challenging, I never thought I could do it. And that was when I stepped out from being a leader who led without portfolio to actually being a leader who was in a defined leadership role. And over that period of time, I realized that actually it's not as hard to be a leader as I had anticipated. It just means making a lot of uncomfortable decisions, especially if you don't have the answers to a lot of stuff. And quite frankly, no leader will ever have all of the answers to all of the questions. It's an uncomfortable position. It's not untenable, but it is awkward. And if you want to live a very comfortable life, 
then leadership is not for you. But some people don't like to live comfortable lives. There's a difference between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. I was working in organizations where I had an entrepreneurial mindset, but I couldn't make anything change in the organization. When I stepped into a leadership role, all of a sudden I became an entrepreneur. I could start making change from within the organization and bring people along with me and create excitement and make a difference. And that was absolutely transformational. And I think that's when I realized that it was time to stop resenting and resisting being a leader and start embracing that leadership, but from a different perspective. Embracing a sense of what could we do if we all jump in together and try to make a difference? And now I will help you get there. Let's do it together. Come. So that doesn't answer the question about being on a board, of course. No. Well, oh God, there's so much I want to dig into already, but let's do it through that lens of the journey to the boardroom. So let's segue there. Tell us about your unexpected journey to the boardroom. After being in Australia for a few years, something had shifted in my mind. Now, I was born in South Africa. I lived in the UK for 13 years, and I'd learned when I was in the UK to take my chocolate gooey center and coat it in a candy shell. Such, uh, such imagery there, particularly post-Easter. Anyway, yes. Yes, true. What happens in the UK is that people uh, have a lot of rules, many of them unwritten. The first thing I learned coming from South Africa is there is actually such a thing as an invisible queue. You can stand waiting for a bus stop, and when you are the first person in front of the doors that opens and you get on first, you get these horrible glares and these audible <gasps> gasps and tuts, right? Because you don't realize that as a South African, the place in the queue is in fact, you have to see who was there before you and who arrives after you. And that is the invisible queue. So living in the UK, not knowing what the rules and culture was, I realized that the Brits couldn't quite adapt to this big personality that is Gina Valorant. And so I covered myself in an acceptable cultural way. And that meant dumbing myself down. Stepping into an organization where it was finally okay to be my real me, be in a work home, allowed me to break through that candy-coated shell and actually start becoming radically and unforgivably and emphatically Gina. But what I also found was that when I shifted into an entrepreneurial role, it was difficult to find people like me, people who had that same mindset. Once I shifted to Australia, all of a sudden everything changed. I could go back to being me, melty, runny, gooey chocolate all over inside and outside, and it became more acceptable. But something else almost magical happened. I found extraordinary women willing to help and work with other extraordinary women. Mm -hmm. And this made me realize, well, hang on a second, I don't have to be alone anymore. And something shifted in my mindset going, right, it's time. It's time to step into leadership. I had by that stage moved out to run my own consultancy. It's a lonely journey for anyone who works on their own and doesn't have a team around them, or it can be sometimes. And that meant that I wanted to start getting back into organizations, but not in a way where I was employed full time, in a way where I could use the wisdom of advice and experience of having been in a leadership role to change the status quo and to help people accept that sometimes things are not great and sometimes there's better ways of doing them. So I bravely applied for a board member position at the Chartered Institute of Marketing. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been a CIM member for several years. When I first realized that marketing was, in fact, a thing, yes. 
applying for the role was absolutely terrifying, but I did it anyway. Mm. And then I thought, yeah, you know what? I've probably got no chance of getting in because I looked at all the other board members and thought, yeah, I don't have their qualifications. I don't have their experience. I don't have their connections. So I was chatting and looking at other stuff that was going on and came across a fabulous fellow by the name of Ant Cohen. And he was running an organization called Project Displaced. And he was appearing in the news because at the time he was helping people who had been affected, especially by the travel industry with COVID shutdowns, get back into work. And I saw something that said, hey, we're looking for coaches. I said, you know, I don't have formal coaching qualifications, but I've got a lot of experience in it. Can I help? He said, actually, you're a marketer, aren't you? I said, yes. He said, I need marketing advice. He's a marketer himself, but often it's hard to see the wood for the trees. Mm. Plus, he's also the chair of the board, so we need someone in a formal marketing road. And he said, do you want to join my board? I nearly fell off my chair because this was exactly what I wanted. I said, I want to join a board. And there it was. And literally said, I've got a great group of people. Come and join me. We're going to make a difference together. Would you like to be part of this? How could I possibly say no? A month later, the Chartered Institute of Marketing came back to me and said, Oh, congratulations, you've become a board member. Oh, by the way, you'll have to attend board meetings between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. Are you up for that? And at the time, I got the feeling that the chair didn't really want me to be on the board. I think it was inconvenient for someone, for an organization based in the UK, although they have international arms all over the world, to have someone attending board meetings from Australia. But I said yes. And nearly two and a half years later, I'm still sitting on the Chartered Institute of Marketing Board and really enjoying being there and, again, challenging the status quo because I was in England. I am no longer in England, but I've lived there and I've understood and experienced what it's like. And I'm no longer afraid to ask uncomfortable questions. And to listen and learn and know that I don't have the answers, but sometimes asking the questions is more important than having the answers. Key skill for a board director is asking those good questions. It's like, I think it's sometimes akin to being collective coach for an organisation in a way. But before we delve into that being in the boardroom stuff, can I skip back a little bit about getting those board roles? So you're, it sounded like right place, right time for Project Displaced. So, hey, do you want to be on the board? Was that it? Were you just on the board then? Did you have to apply? Was there a process? And same for the Chartered Institute of Marketers. What was the process there? Talk us through the process. So the Project Displaced Board is brand new and hadn't even formed it yet. He knew that he had some people on his board who were very experienced, who could help guide him through, you know, what are the principles and procedures that we need to set up? What are the documents that we need to create? What roles do we have to have? What committees do we have to have? What I's do we need to dot and T's do we need to cross? And so we actually formed it from the very beginning. There was nothing. And then all of a sudden there was a board. So it really was as informal as and asking me a question and me going, yes, absolutely. And subsequently, I met the other board members. We went through all the processes. We did all the form filling in and stuff like that. But it's almost the story of my life that when there's something I really, really want to happen, I find a way of sneaking it in and kind of going through processes that aren't the regular earmarked fundamental, you must do this, you must follow this path. And that was how it worked for me. So when it came to the Chartered Institute of Marketing, it's actually an elected board position. 
Right. It would be great to hear the process there because often people do get involved in the boards of their professional associations or membership organisations of, of all sorts. So, yeah, talk us through this process there. Well, you might have sensed, Helia, that there is a little bit of me that doesn't like to do everything by the book. I like to push the boundaries a little bit and find clever or innovative ways of getting around things. I'm not sure if that's a good skill for a board member or not, but it is me, quintessentially. Yeah. So when the CIM board application was taking process, I did all of the I-dotting and T-crossing. I found the people who needed to support my application, said, would you mind? I wrote the application as I did, looked at all of the other board members, looked at what else I could see, did my homework and research, and really tailored stuff as much as I could based on the information that I had available. But there was one step that was not prohibited, but it wasn't necessarily encouraged. And I read through all of the charters and the documents, and I couldn't see any language that explicitly prohibited me from talking about it on social media. Mm. And so that's exactly what I did. I put an impassioned plea up on LinkedIn saying, chartered marketers or any members of the Chartered Institute of Marketing, you have a responsibility to vote. You have a duty and it is your job to make sure that you elect a CIM member who represents your values, who helps you stand up for what you believe in. Coincidentally, and again, you're saying right place, right time. I think there's a large element of that in my board career. It was at the time that the American elections were happening as well. <laughs> Speaking of encouraging people to vote, okay. Exactly. So encouraging people to vote and to do their civic responsibility was exactly the right kind of message in the market. And I think it really resonated deeply with the marketers who were up there on LinkedIn and those who wanted to participate in that. And I think often membership organizations forget that their members actually have the opportunity to be involved and they need a little bit of encouragement because it's easy to be a member but be a member in name only you pay your subs every year you might attend a meeting or two maybe you connect with a few of the people and then you're like eh, so I'm a member so what but actually I think people became members of organizations because something resonated with them and it helps to remind them why they joined in the first place and I think that was key to being able to get a bunch of people involved and encouraged to actually participate. Now, again, because a right place, right time, and a little bit of tweaking, the board election process means that the top, I think there were three people who could be elected at the time, and one of those positions was earmarked for an international position. So even though technically I was not in the top three votes, I was the highest voted international member. And is that non-UK? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I snuck in. Nice work, which is, <laughs> and meetings at 1am. <gasps> so it's such an interesting role in membership organisations, I think, because I totally agree people join membership organisations for a whole range of reasons, but I would say it's part of the role of the board to ensure those members are engaged in the process and fully in voting or just participating in a range of other ways of helping to direct the organisation. You don't just hand it over to the board. The board needs to engage 
members, shareholders, whoever it may be, whoever their group might be. Tell me about your first board meeting with them. It's one o'clock in the morning. Tell me about the first board meeting. That's a funny memory. I was listening to one of your podcast guests earlier this morning who was talking about how she was scared about her first board meeting and she prepared a bunch of questions and she didn't ask anything and then she got a board buddy to check through her questions and make sure that she was asking the right ones. And I think that's a sensible and wise approach. It's not my approach, though. (laughs) So I'm more a jump in feet first kind of person. And I suspect that on my first board meeting, I was asking a lot of stupid questions. Not that that there's any such thing as a stupid question. There are sometimes questions that other people already know the answers to or that you might have been able to find out the answer to via a different platform or tool or by having a conversation with an individual rather than the group. I was super nervous, but that didn't prevent me from actually piping up. And I think that actually is a lesson for women particularly and women on boards that often we have questions that need answering, that if we stay stum and we don't say anything, we're not only do we not serve ourselves because no one becomes aware of us and no one becomes aware of the credibility that we carry by asking those questions, we can also do the boards and anyone who's attending the board meeting a disservice because the questions need to be asked. I'm not sure that everyone was really comfortable with me asking the questions, but they were answered. And people were warm and friendly and engaging. And yeah, I got told off occasionally like, oh, Gina, that's a tactical measure, not a strategic one. We don't deal with that at board level. I'm like, oh, uh, wrapped over the knuckles. Okay, now I know. (laughs) But even that's actually great that the board was able to do that and to say so rather than just, you know, passive aggressively moving things along. That's actually fantastic in a way. They were actually great about making sure that I had my onboarding, that I read all the documents, I knew all the stats and the background information and I did a proper induction and felt like the difference between the two boards has almost been like night and day or chalk and cheese as you would expect one is a an august organization they've been around for a long time they represent a bunch of people internationally they have very formalized ways of doing things the other was brand new and figuring out as they went along so it has been quite an interesting experience to actually juxtapose the two board approaches and to see where the conflicts arise within the board itself and where the conflict arises between the executive and the board. And when I joined the CIM, I had actually three intentions. One was, you read out the letters earlier, so I'm an FAMI and an FCIM. So FAMI means I'm a fellow of the Australian Market Institute. Aha, thank you. And FCIM, as you guessed, is that I'm a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Marketing. I'm also a certified practicing marketer, that's through the AMI, and I'm also a chartered marketer through the Chartered Institute of Marketing. So a lot of uh, acronyms, basically, which means, yeah, I've got a bit of marketing experience. (laughs) But the reason I mention this is because when I joined the CIM, I was not yet a fellow. So the way it goes is it goes, you're an associate, and usually that's when people are studying, they join as an associate member, then you become a full member after doing a certain number of CPDs that uh, continuing professional development hours, and having a certain level of relevant experience in the industry, and then finally you can become this august fellow, someone who 
carries the charisma and the gravitas of a fellow. So I thought, this is what I want. I want to be a fellow. Let's bring us on, baby. So I wanted to join the board to become a fellow. I wanted to join the board to figure out what happens behind those closed doors. Because it's almost a mystery. There's an element of intrigue and secrecy about being on a board, which I don't think is necessary. Of course, boards need to keep the information that goes on behind the closed doors confidential in that it must not reach the light of day until the right time. But it doesn't mean that board processes or board interactions should be confidential. I wish more people knew that actually boards are just groups of human beings like any other group you join. So I wanted to figure out what was going on there. And then the third reason I joined the CIM board was because marketers have a responsibility to make a difference in the world, but they also have a responsibility to be proud of and to champion the role that they play in society. And I thought that while the CIM is a fantastic organization, there was an opportunity to showcase more marketing pride. And I can say in the two and a half years I've been there that that is shifting. But I don't think it's just the CIM's role to shift that. I think it is the role and responsibility of every single marketer on the planet to stand up for what they believe in and to be able to say to their organization and others, that is acceptable marketing. And no, that is not acceptable marketing. And to turn around and say, this is not good. I will not do this. And here's why. But here's what we should do instead. So then I'm, I'm wondering, because that's marketers within organisations, when we think about boardrooms, often, you know, the first thing that often leaps to mind for people is, oh, we need a lawyer on the board, we need an accountant on the board, we need people with C-suite experience on the board. Where do marketers fit in? You don't often hear marketers, oh, we need a marketer on the board. Do we need marketers in the boardroom? Yes, yes, and yes. Helia, I'm so glad you asked that question. You have been reading my mind. I'll tell you a story to illustrate this point and how it riles me up. When I was looking for paid board roles, I reached out to some wonderful, experienced women who've been on boards for a long period of time. And one of them said to me, you can choose, Gina. You can either be a marketer or you can be a board member, but you can't be both. Oh, my goodness. No. What? She said, you need to rewrite your LinkedIn profile so that you remove the references to marketing. Now, she had some very, very, very good points. She said, you need to talk about strategy. You need to talk about leadership. You need to talk about discipline and rigor and all of the required I dotting T crossing stuff. Fair, fair point. But the problem was that she was actually channeling an inherent bias that too many boards channel, which is that marketing is seen as the coloring in department. I can see you laughing for our audience members out there. Helia's nearly falling off her chair. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Yes, continue. <laughs> but she's not wrong because that is the perception that people have of marketing. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with a CIM going, we have to train marketers to be board ready. Now, the irony is that if you think about the personality characteristics of a marketer and a salesperson, they're remarkably similar. But the difference between sales and marketing is that sales is ballsy and really brave. And they go out and they talk about things and they make waves and ripples. Marketers tend to be behind the scenes. They do absolutely everything. Being a marketer is exhausting. It is 24-7 work. It is running the minutest of minutiae that people don't realize. You see an advertising campaign on a billboard, you don't realize that that may have taken weeks or months to get to market. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And the problem is that marketers are so busy at doing the doing that they often forget to promote themselves. And I think that part of the reason why marketers are not represented on boards is because, oh gosh, there's several reasons. Because they haven't done their own marketing for themselves, because they haven't historically shown the direct correlation between marketing and sales, which is the lifeblood of an organization. And I'm afraid I have to call this out because marketers have been women and historically boards have been populated by stale, pale males. So I don't disagree with any of that. Although I'm also wondering, because you've talked about marketers doing everything, it sounds very much like marketers are in the doing and we know, and you know from your experience on boards, is that boards operate at that strategic level. And indeed, you even reflected at some of the board meetings that that's happened. So I'm wondering, what's your advice to marketers about getting themselves in the boardroom and leveraging that strategic insight rather than, inverted commas, just the doing? It's a very hard question to answer, Helia, because not everyone thinks strategically. Mm. Can one be taught to think strategically? Yes. But the concept of strategy is one I have a personal problem with. I wrote a lot of chapters for the Secret Army Leadership Marketing and the Power of People, but the one I struggled with the most was the chapter on strategy. Not because I don't understand strategy, but because strategy has been used for the most ridiculous concepts. And I think the problem is that marketers almost see straight through the crap that people label as strategy. I remember reading a book on strategy where they said, strategy has been used for everything from where we're going in six years time to my strategic choice of which tie I'm going to wear with which shirt. Mm -hmm. It's a problem because with the Dunning-Kruger effect, you get people who think they're really smart and talk about strategy as if they know what they're doing and they don't. But you get the opposite effect, and this happens with a lot of marketers in my experience, where they suffer greatly from imposter syndrome. And so they assume that they don't know, that they don't understand strategy, even though they do. I think to shift the strategic perspective of marketers on boards, it's important for marketers to actually respect that what they're doing on a day-to-day basis has long-term consequences. Now, you can't get to be a CMO without understanding the bottom line, the ROI. You need to know whether your campaign is moving a needle or not. But I think that what marketers actually haven't done very well is get to know the rest of the organization. To a certain extent, we're so busy finding out what our customers want that we're externally focused more than internally focused. And there's also an element of politics. A lot of marketers just couldn't be asked (laughs) to do the political wrangling that is required to get to senior executive levels, in part because they're too busy doing the doing and managing people who are doing the doing. So in answer to your question of how do you actually get more marketers to be board ready, I think it actually comes down to more marketers finding board ready marketers. More marketers finding board-ready marketers, yes. And listen to people who are sitting on boards and who can say, this is how you learn from other board members. I've done a lot of listening to marketing board members, and it's funny because I sit on boards and yet I still feel unprepared. Imposter syndrome, hello. You know, there are a lot of women and a lot of marketers who have that. To be fair, imposter syndrome reaches men just as much. They just react and respond to it differently. How do you get more marketers on board? How do they think strategically? 
I guess it comes down to the difference of thinking about a campaign that's a week or a month or three months to thinking about a campaign that's three or five or six years. And if marketers look at their careers with a longer term view, it's actually quite easy to see where they want to go and how they're going to get there and easy to see, well, this is how the organization wants to get there too. But I think the nature of being perpetually busy often prohibits people from taking that step aside. And if there's a lesson that I could leave for marketers, it would be force yourself to stop. A podcast I was listening to you that you gave earlier, you said you now set a, set time aside for yourself to read the board minutes and papers before attending board meeting. You set it out in your diary and you say, no, that is sacrosanct. You may not have other meetings during that time because I have to carve out that time. I think marketers need to do the same thing for their future and the future of their career, not just in that organization. Because remember, marketers have extremely short tenures. Of the C-suite, the CMO is the one that has the shortest tenure, sometimes two to three years. It's hard to be extremely strategic when you know that a lot of your efforts are never going to see the light of day because you won't be with the organization long enough to actually have that happen. But I think marketers need to force themselves to go I am stopping today, this week, this month, this quarter, whatever it is, and I will do nothing but think big, personally, professionally, within my organization, outside of my organization. And what that does is it forces the person and the team to say no more. And saying no is a vastly underestimated skill. And I wish more marketers learned how to say no. Well, that allows you to say yes. Absolutely. Oh, Dina, so much in here. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? I think I want marketers to take away the fact that they own and earn and deserve a spot on the board. I want women to take away the fact that they have the right and the responsibility to ask more questions. And I want anyone who's listening to this and has a spark of hope that my, maybe one day they'll become a board member to realize that there are surprising and unexpected ways to step into board leadership role. I have illustrated two of them. You don't have to do the formal CV and the formal application process. Sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. Although it helps to have the formal CV for the record go on. Yes, of course. Oh, <laughs> don't, uh, don't get me wrong. It's got to be there. My point is simply that don't let the fact that you're not 100% happy with your CV prevent you from applying for the roles. There, I don't think there's such a thing as a perfect board CV. There are great CVs, but there are also crap ones and someone might get the role just because they've put their CV in. So please, please, please try, make the effort, but don't do it on your own. Ask people, get to know people, reach out to people like Helia and her organization the acronym team, Together Everyone Achieves More, is trite, but it's true. Boards are about being together with people who help you see the world in a different way. And if you want to be part of that, build your own board, create your own organization of people who challenge you to do more differently. Is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? There are so many that it's difficult to choose. I think the one resource would probably be LinkedIn, ironically. You never know who you're going to know. Ask that question. Give that cheeky ask and reach out to people who you think you're not in the same league as because you will find more often than not that there's something in you that resonates with them. Just the fact that you're asking, just the fact that you are 
attracted to something about them that resonates with you, if you ask nicely enough, if you phrase your ask in a good way, they'll see that and they'll recognize you. I have been amazed by the people who will connect with me and have wonderful conversations just because I asked. But if you don't ask, you'll never know. Absolutely. Woman after my own heart there. Oh, Gina, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom about your journey to the boardroom. And as you say, some different ways to get in the boardroom and also that little call to action, not little call to action, that big call to action uh, for boards to take on marketers and to marketers to step up to that space as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom with the Take On Board community today. Thank you, Helia. It's been my pleasure. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women and gender diverse people together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd also really love it if you could do some of the other, well, podcast things. Share the podcast with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.